with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm a senior writer with HowStuffWorks.com. I like to talk about things that go buzz in the night, you know, like robots and stuff. And today, I thought we'd explore the world of Alienware. This is a company that's been making specialized gaming rig computers since the mid-1990s. And I thought it might be cool to see where it got its start and where is it going. Now, a little bit later in this episode, I'll be talking with Frank Azor, general manager of Alienware, one of the co-founders, one of the early, early employees of the company. And he's going to give us some background on that company, a little bit more about the philosophy and the design uh, decisions and and just kind of what makes the the company tick. But let's sta- set the stage a little bit so that we understand why Alienware uh, even has a space in the PC world. Well, games have been part of computer history for a really long time, which really shouldn't come as much of a surprise. Gaming has always been a big part of the human experience. We hone skills through games. We bond socially with others. We explore ideas. We test philosophies. Or sometimes we just want to beat up on some sort of, I don't know, Martian robo-overlord or something. Now, back in 1958, before personal computers were even a thing, there was a physicist named William Higginbotham who used an analog computer and an oscilloscope to create a game similar to what would later become Pong. And a few years later, in 62, Stephen Russell at MIT created Space War, which was a predecessor to the arcade machines that would follow more than a decade later. These games were built on specialized hardware. We're talking like mainframe computers. We had to go... 10 years into the future to look about the first uh, PC games because personal computers weren't really a thing till the mid to late 70s. For example, in 1976, Will Crowther, who actually was one of the people who worked on the ARPANET, that was a predecessor to the internet. It was a network that uh, that ended up pioneering the technologies that would power the internet. Well, he wasn't just busy helping make computers talk to each other. He was also developing a text-based game in Fortran called Colossal Cave Adventure for the PDP-10 mainframe, which is not exactly a PC, I grant you, but other programmers began to work on the project in order to port it over to different computer systems, including personal computer systems. And these text-based games were kind of like a role-playing game. It would spell out what is going on in any given room. You would get a paragraph of text, and it would describe your surroundings and things that are in the area. And you would have to type in whatever it was you wanted to do. So, for example, you might say there's a... uh, The description says, you are in a room, there is an old chair in the corner, and a door leads out to the north. And you might say, sit in chair. And if the programmers had thought about that then you would get a response. Perhaps it would be something such as, you sit in the chair, that's a load off, or the chair collapses under your weight, you're now sitting on a pile of lumber, or whatever the result may be. And you would just go turn through turn. Not exactly the cutting edge in technology by today's standards, but it was an early attempt at creating games for computers. 
And there were a lot of these text-based games in the day. I remember things like the Zork series or Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and, of course, The Leather Goddesses of Phobos. And yes, that's a real game. You can look it up. Before long, a host of programmers began to build graphics-based games. They began to create things that weren't just text-related. You could control little characters or perhaps uh, control a vehicle of some sort. It was all very primitive at the time. The graphics were very basic, and so were the, the sounds. Display resolution and processor power and sound ability was replacing really hefty limitations on what a game developer could do. Not that it stopped people from pushing the envelope, there have always been game developers who have been creating games that push hardware to its limits. And so it was even in the early days. But those limits were much lower back then. And then Moore's Law just kept on plugging away. You know, that observation that, generally speaking today, we, we interpret it as computers get about twice as powerful every 24 months as they were before. So in two years, the computers that you buy are twice as powerful as the ones from two years previous. And two years in the future, they'll be twice as powerful as the ones that are here today. Well, that was still going along. And so you were getting increasing amounts of processing power. But if you start off small, then doubling doesn't mean you get a huge amount, right? Not at the beginning. It Over time, yes. But let's say that you know, you can lift 20 pounds and then you train and train and train and train. And now you can lift twice that. You can lift 40 pounds. Well, 40 pounds in the grand scheme of things still isn't that much. But then you train and train and then it's 80 pounds and then 160. And then pretty soon you're talking about really, really big numbers. Well, in those early days of personal computers, we weren't talking big numbers. So while developers were creating games that could push hardware to its limits, it was still pretty modest. Then something big happened, and it happened in the mid-1990s. And that big something was 3D graphics. Now, that was not 3D in the you-need-special-glasses-in-order-to-play-this-game sense, but rather that the rendered objects on screen appeared to have three dimensions to them. They appeared to have depth. And that was a lot different from what had been there. It used to be that games all looked like just two-dimensional characters, there was no third dimension to them. Games like Doom and Quake started to support these three-dimensional graphics, and you needed hardware to support that capability. In the early days, it was the CPU's job to do all of that 3D rendering. Now, obviously, the CPU has to do a lot, so pushing 3D rendering onto the CPU as well made it work even harder. So a few companies began to explore options with expansion cards that would take on some of the work that the CPU would have to do. Video cards had been around since the 1980s, but none of them were really true 3D graphics cards. Those would come in the mid-90s, and one of the earliest of those was the Verge PCI expansion card from S3. Verge, spelled V-I-R-G-E, stood for Virtual Reality Graphics Engine. So they had pretty high aspirations back in those mid-90s. We're talking like 1995 right here. So this would be during the first attempt to bring virtual reality uh, out into the public consciousness. This was the one that ultimately crashed in on itself and and ultimately it, it set virtual reality back by about a decade because people were so disenchanted by it that no one was really willing to pour any money into it for quite some time. 
Well, the first card, this Verge PCI expansion card, had four whole megabytes of memory and a clock speed of 66 megahertz. Now, at the time, that was impressive, but by today's standards, it wouldn't even measure up to a bargain Ben graphics card. What it did do, however, was create a new era, the era of the hardcore gamer, because now you could actually get a supplemental card on your computer that would allow you to play these advanced games uh, and there had never been anything like that really before. And tons of other graphics cards followed, both from S3, that was the company that made the Verge PCI uh, card, and lots of other manufacturers as well. So there were some pretty big names that got serious traction in those days. You had ATI, that was way before the Radeon days, and they introduced the Rage 3D card. I remember when that came out. 3DFX launched the Voodoo 1, which was incredibly influential. I'll have to do a full episode about 3DFX sometime in the future. That that whole story is a little weird. The Voodoo 1 also did something the other early 3D cards did not do. It focused solely on rendering 3D graphics. Other early cards would fuse 3D graphics rendering with 2D graphics rendering. So you'd have both of them handled by the same graphics card. But with the Voodoo 1, you actually had to have a second graphics card just to handle the 2D graphics. It would work alongside the Voodoo 1 in order for you to get the full functionality. And it doesn't stop with the Voodoo 1 either. NVIDIA got into the game, literally in this case, with the launch of the NV3 in 1997. Later still, in 1998, a Canadian company called Matrox decided to wade into the fray and they had their own 3D acceleration cards. And Intel tried to compete in this new space with the i740 graphics cards, though the product failed to get much traction in the marketplace and it didn't get very many positive reviews either. For the most part, the graphics card market was dominated by ATI, NVIDIA, 3DFX, and S3 in those early years. So this creates some level of confusion for people who want to pursue PC gaming. Let's take myself as an example. I was playing PC games back then. I wasn't a console gamer at this time in the, the mid to late 90s. I was a PC gamer. But... My PC was just a basic PC. I didn't have, like, a dedicated graphics card. And once these games started to get this advanced, and there was really more or less a requirement for you to get a 3D graphics card, it was hard for me to figure out what I should do next. There were so many different cards on the market, and they all had different abilities, and I wasn't really sure what any of them were. And and they also, many of them had proprietary approaches, which meant that you could buy a game, that requires a 3D graphics accelerator card, and you have one of those cards in your computer, but you have one from a different manufacturer, and because it's not compatible, you can't play the game. Even though, from a raw power standpoint, you'd be fine. It's Your card is completely capable of, of churning out the, the output that you would need, but because of that proprietary approach and the incompatibility issue, the game still won't run on your machine. This was really frustrating. Uh, you know, before that, before the graphics cards and sound cards really became a, a big deal, you just had to really worry about the motherboard and the CPU plus any expansion cards you might want in order to hook up gear to your computer. But now you suddenly had to take those 3D graphics cards into account. This was a non-trivial task. You had all these competing products on the market. And you didn't necessarily know which firmware, which which proprietary approach, rather, would be the best one. You might go out and buy a card that today 
had support for most of the games that were on the market. And then a year from then, it might turn out that all the games that are coming out don't support that format anymore. They go to one of the competitors. So it was a very confusing and frustrating time. It meant that game developers also were going through this. They had to decide which graphics cards were they going to support with their their games. Because every time you add on another graphics card to support, you add on time that it takes and money and, and other resources that it takes to develop the game so that it will run on that platform. So from a game developer standpoint, having lots of different uh, incompatible formats out there is frustrating because you have to make those decisions. If you try to support everything, it's going to take you longer to get your game out, which means it's going to be more expensive to you. It means you're going to have to sell more copies of it in order to get a return on your investment. And if you choose to not support everyone, then you have to figure out which card makes the most sense to support, which one is going to get you the most potential sales. It was not a great time to have to make these decisions. It was really kind of uh, difficult. So it was a total bummer if you were a gamer and you felt like you had made bad decisions or just that you had made a decision that turned out later on to become bad. Like at the time it wasn't bad, but later down the road it did. Building a PC got more complicated and the games kept coming out. And so that opened up an opportunity for a company to come along and serve that market. So instead of building identical, identical beige boxes with like standard specs to them, this company would design gaming rigs with gamers in mind. So the company would offer up various options for gamers to choose from. So it wasn't even just like, here are three different computer models. There were a lot of options for gamers to choose which components they wanted included, and that would obviously affect everything from the performance of the PC to its ultimate price. Now, all of the actual work in building the rig would be done by the company. The gamer wouldn't have to do it, so that takes that responsibility off the gamer's shoulders. That company was Alienware. But here's a little bit of trivia. It wasn't originally called Alienware. In fact, it wasn't originally meant to be a PC gaming rig company. The original name of the company back in 1996 was Psykai, and it was based in Miami, Florida. Still is, in fact, to this day. Alienware is still in Miami. The founder was Nelson Gonzalez, and he started the company with a $10,000 personal credit loan. He didn't set out to make gaming rigs right away either. He was just going to build personal computers. But then he noticed that many of the people he knew, like his friends and family, were coming to him for advice on how to make a personal computer run certain games that either were underperforming on their current machine or not even working at all. And Gonzalez understood the complexities of the PC space at the time and helped get those computers in shape. You know, his friends and family, he helped them out. And he made sure that they could run the latest games and they didn't have these compatibility issues. So he then developed a business plan. And that business plan was direct sell selling to customers. It was a, a, a very transparent sort of approach where customers could come straight through to purchase these uh, PCs, which increasingly became gaming rigs. He was still making regular PC computers at the time, but he was finding more and more of his time dedicated to building out these gaming rigs for gamers. In 1997, he convinced his friend Alex Aguila 
to join him uh, at his company. And by the end of 97, the two decided it was time to pivot the business and focus solely on building PC gaming rigs. They said farewell to the standard PC business and went all in on gaming. Now, as I said at the top of the show, I had the opportunity to talk to the general manager of Alienware, Frank Azor, and we had a nice conversation. So we'll listen in on that interview right after we take this break to thank our sponsor. First of all, thank you so much for joining me today. I very much appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jonathan. Appreciate it. And uh, I would like to to start at the beginning. I find that's always a good place and talk about the uh, earliest days. We're talking about Alienware, a brand that has really uh, established itself as the forefront for especially for like high performing gaming rigs. But uh, how did it all get started? Well, it starts with an idea, um, pretty simply. Um, we were very passionate gamers at the time, and um, mostly playing on PC, some on console. And a, a lot of really great games were coming out on the PC. Um, uh, around that time, we were working with Doom, Doom 2, um, Quake. Uh, and these games were really pushing the um, performance boundaries of what PCs were able to do then. And it was also really hard to get to work correctly uh, on PCs back then. Uh, we had a 16-bit DOS operating system, 32-bit Windows operating system. Graphics cards were just starting to emerge on the market for consumers, and there was 2D cards and 3D cards. So it was really hard to get these games to work correctly. So our, our CEO um, had started a PC company and was just trying to build like regular PCs at the time. And a lot of friends kept coming to him and saying, hey, I want to play these games and I want to play them with you guys. Can you help me tweak my machine to do it uh, or build me one to do it? And he would help them out. And little by little, it just started forming into a business. And he reached out to one of his uh, friends, Alex, and Alex joined him. And then they reached out to another friend. That friend introduced me to them. And, uh, and Alienware was born. So this is a great point that you make, this idea of, of how in those early days when PC games were really starting to enter in a new level of sophistication. I mean, PC gaming obviously had been an element since the birth of the personal computer, but around the mid-90s is when we really started to see it blossom and and push the boundaries of what computers were capable of doing. It really was a complicated uh, system to, to try and keep up with the demands of the latest games. You had all these different uh, cards, some of which might not be compatible with certain motherboards, which to, to, the, to the uninitiated, to people who don't build computers, that creates a real barrier, right? It, it creates that level of intimidation of getting into PC gaming, something that still really exists today. And there may be people out there who do not realize that not all processors are compatible with all motherboards, and you may have issues with certain graphics cards. And so to create a business around solving those issues so that the consumer doesn't have to think about it uh, obviously has a great deal of appeal. What sort of um, – what are some of the things that gamers need to think about when they are talking about gaming rigs, you know, we're talking about, you know, graphics processing. What what are the sort of metrics you guys look at when you're building out your machines? 
Yeah, PC gaming was absolutely very complicated initially. Fortunately, it's gotten a lot simpler over time. On the software side, we'd have we've had solutions like Steam and um, an Origins uh, solution. Uh, EA uses Origin for their games. And what they've done with these um, digital distribution solutions is that they've made them a lot easier for us to maintain our games, to download our games, to patch them up, to, to deal with DRM um, and CD keys. In the old days, you used to have disks, multiple disks to install a game. You used to have to keep your CD key somewhere around or your game key somewhere around. And if you lost it, you were kind of SOL. Mm-hmm. Um, and and not only was it difficult to do that, but then there was always patches that you had to go out to these obscure websites to try and download. And sometimes there were viruses built into those patches because they were uh, you know, malicious code that other people would bundle into the executables. Uh, and it was always hard to maintain and keep up with all the patches that are out there. It, it was just very difficult. So we got really, uh, really lucky with these uh, innovations that companies like Steam and and the others built um, to help simplify this whole experience. And then on the hardware side, uh, companies like Alienware, we've been in, uh, providing turnkey gaming systems for folks so that they don't have to worry about the PC itself, the technology that goes into it, uh, maintaining the technology, servicing it if and when it fails. Um, when someone comes to Alienware, they're coming to us because they want to focus on playing the games. They don't want to have to worry about the tech and then the potential headaches that come associated with it. And, that, and that's really been what we've built our business on is telling folks, look, if you have the time, the knowledge, and the expertise to build your own system, by all means, you're always going to build something better than what anybody else can build it for you. But when your time becomes a little bit more limited and your patience may be a little bit more limited and you want to just focus on your game and not have to worry about the hardware that enables you to enjoy that experience, that's what it's for. So what we've done over the years is we've done a lot of work to try and simplify making those decisions. If you look at how we sell our systems today and how we offer them to customers, a bunch of different kind of pre-configurations for them to kind of see, okay, well, this is like a, a mid-range system. This is a really high-end system. We give them the, the, the right uh, communication that they need to know about what their system capabilities are going to be. We tell them that this is going to be a 1080p gaming system or if this is a 4K-capable rig. Um, and then, of course, if they want to customize it, we offer them the options to be able to do it. But the whole thing that what we've tried to do is we've tried to simplify the gaming experience for folks to make it less intimidating and to and to help grow, quite frankly, which we've been very successful in doing. PC gaming is going to, or gaming in general, I should say, not just PC, but gaming is going to grow to be a $30 billion business this year, um, which is pretty amazing, something that exceeded our wildest expectations. And the approach of Alienware, again, not to harp on it too much, but this idea of creating the solutions for the gamer, for people who haven't built a machine, that's a non-trivial issue. I mean, we I know gamers who consider themselves console gamers largely because they find the the idea of trying to build a gaming rig to be intimidating. They are worried that if they build one, that the specs will become obsolete so quickly that it will not have justified the amount of time they put into it. They've heard horror stories about people building rigs, and then you get to that magic moment where you flip the power switch and nothing happens, and you aren't really sure what it was that went wrong, and then you have to work it all out. So something like this, where you have the 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 gaming rigs built 
and you can even customize it in the ordering process makes life a lot easier to get into that PC gaming world where, you know, you can finally find out if all those PC gamers who have been boasting for years that the gameplay and graphics are far <laughs> superior to any console, you can finally find out for yourself. And for anyone who has not gone through even just as uh, just as a, a this is my dream rig experience, uh, I do recommend actually building out a uh, a gaming rig using the the Alienware approach because I've done that on multiple occasions and I'm just it's always my all right if I sell a book this is the rig I'm buying <laughs> like this uh, that next book deal that next whatever that big bonus is this is the rig uh because uh it is uh, you could build a real beast <laughs> with those those tools so Tell me a little bit more about what's the story behind the name Alienware? Did that that come from anything in particular or was it just something like a cool idea or was there inspiration drawn from elsewhere? Because I could tell you what Wikipedia says. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be careful with what Wikipedia says. Because you'd be amazed at how many founders of Alienware there are out there that we've never heard of um, on Wikipedia popping up <laughs> left and right. But, um, yeah, it's a really interesting story. You know, back in uh, in the late 90s, uh, The X-Files was a really popular show um, mm-hmm. at the time. And um, Nelson, our, our, our CEO, and then the original founder to the company who came up with the concept of Alienware and really the concept of selling PC gaming systems, he's a very creative individual. Um, he actually created pretty much all of the art that um, Alienware ever put out, all of our graphics and art and industrial design with the help of Astro Studios in the uh, uh, for the majority of, uh, of Alienware's early years. And, um, you know, he was thinking to himself, once he had the idea for building this gaming company, he was thinking to himself, well, we're going to kind of be building the best computers in the world. We're going to be using some of the latest and greatest hardware to run the latest and greatest software that's out there, games in particular, these games are the ones that are like pushing the limits as to what's possible in computing at the time, and it still are in a lot of ways. So he was, he was thinking about what he's going to call this company, and he was kind of putting together hardware and software and thinking, well, we're going to be, you know, kind of state-of-the-art, advanced technologies, and he just figured you know, aliens, we tend to think, have superior technology to what we have here. So they kind of put it all together, hardware, software, aliens, and that's really where the name emerged from. And uh, the aesthetic really developed pretty early on, too. I mean, obviously, the, the very first Alienware uh, rigs that came out, they some of them included uh, early, early desktops included colors that you just didn't see out there, things that really set them apart. But shortly after that, you got away from the uh, the standard sort of box tower design of desktops and you started getting into some really interesting um curved lines and and vents the machines that looked like they went fast even while they were sitting still i mean i think that <laughs> the predator desktop is still one of those that i look at and i i just love that design was that something that came from uh, the same group yeah um it, it's an interesting history you know when you're a really small company and we were a small company and we grew organically we never took uh, investment in the early days, um, we, we, we really grew everything uh, based on the sales that were coming in and just reinvesting little by little into the company. So uh, we knew that we wanted, we had a vision for the kind of products that we wanted to develop. And little by little, we started realizing that vision. We wanted to bring the type of design that Apple at the time and still even today had brought to consumer electronics. We wanted to bring that 
to PCs and particular PC games or PC gaming systems. Back then, you may recall, pretty much every computer was like a beige, boring box. Mm -hmm. And the only company that was actually doing any hint of industrial design was IBM because they had black that they were using. Um, and that was about as far as it had gone. Uh, and Apple had come out with the iMacs and these really cool designs and colors, and they were adding life into these uh, these devices. And Nelson's like, look, we eventually want to go and build our own product from the ground up. Um, but we can't afford to do it yet. I mean, these, to, to build something like that, it's millions of dollars. And we just couldn't afford it. We were such a small company. So we said to ourselves, what's, what's kind of like, what's the most we could do within what we could afford at that time? And that's where we went out. We started looking for some really cool cases that existed on the market out there, out in Taiwan and in China. And then we started working on uh, painting them. So that we can give customers the ability to, you know, personalize their experience with a really, really cool paint job and color motif and everything that would just stand out in a crowd of beige computers and uh, boring old designs. And, and that's really what started it. We experimented with that. We thought that that would succeed. It took off massively. And thanks to that, we were able to go off and create the Predator project. And that project, the Predator chassis, that case has defined the look of Alienware computers ever since that we came out with it. Our notebooks um, had a very similar design when we came out with uh, our first gaming notebook and the industry's first gaming notebook. And then even then, if you look at our products today, you'll see that there's several characteristics about them that are much more evolved and, and, and more current and futuristic as compared to what we built with the Predator back then. And in the notebook, we called it Skullcap. Um, but they still pay homage to that original industrial design and that uh, uh, that legacy of identity that we established with that Predator chassis back then. I mean, nowadays, to bring a product to market, for example, like uh, one of our desktops, like the Area 51 desktop, we spent over $10 million in research and development bringing that product to market. And every single element of that uh, of that design is completely custom. If you look at it, that's a really cool triangular design that, mm -hmm. that we offer today. We just updated it to a, a AMD Threadripper 16-core processor. It's like the fastest desktop ever ever built before. And every element of it, you know, down to the fans that we're using, the liquid cooling system, the paint that we're using, the material composition, the architecture of the chassis and the construction of it, the shape of it's unique. It's never been done before. So, you know, we're, we're pushing the limit even more and more and more and innovating more than we've ever done. And thankful, it's, it's, it's all thanks to our customers for, you know, believing in us, trusting us and investing in us that we've been able to continue to push these limits. And uh, with that particular design, that triangular one, I got a chance to see that at E3 and it, it is uh, an amazing piece of technology. It's very clever. I like the design where it allows for more uh, efficient cooling of the various elements. Obviously, now that we're in a time where overclocking is becoming more and more of uh, a standard approach from a lot of power gamers out there. You've got multiple high-powered graphics processing units in there. You've got to have a good heat management system or else, I mean, we all know heat and electronics are not best buddies. They do, they, things break down quickly if they get too hot. So seeing that design and seeing that approach, I thought was very interesting, very clever. And, and for those out there who aren't familiar with the process for building out these sort of things, you're talking about, uh, you know, early designs going into prototype models, going into production models, going into manufacturing uh, models. And, and this is 
a very long process for any piece of of any kind of product that comes out on mass production. So it's one of those uh, processes that I think behind the scenes that a lot of people just don't think about when they see something brand new on the shelf. They don't realize the the number of hours that go into any given product uh, for th- that to be out there. So uh, I appreciate you kind of enlightening us on that. And I also want to point out that early reviews of Alienware really gave it a big boost as well. In fact, uh, there was a magazine article that that ended up getting uh, a really great push for Alienware when the reviewer said that if there were any way he could hold on to the Alienware <laughs> desktop he was given to review and not return it, he would very much appreciate that. So I think that's probably the best review any computer manufacturer can hope for when the person giving the review admits outright that they just want to hold on to that machine. Yeah, that was a that was a, a defining moment in our history um, for a couple of reasons. One, because getting a great review is always awesome, and we're very sensitive to what the press and especially our customers say about us and our products. And um, you know, pretty much any comment, any any question, any complaint about anything that reaches us at, at Alienware headquarters goes answered, because. If we mess up, we, we want our customers to acknowledge. To, we want to acknowledge to our customers that we did so. We want to learn from it and we want to improve. And if we didn't necessarily mess up, we want to defend ourselves and explain why. But listening to customers' feedback, listening to what our, our the experts in the industry, like press and journalists, have to say about our products, um, and acting upon that is has been a key contributor not only to our initial success but also to our, all of our success up to now. It's because of our ability to listen and be so sensitive to that information because we, we've never forgotten where we came from. We really came from, of course, that idea, that original idea that Nelson had, but we also came from that review, which told us what we did well and what we needed and what we needed to do improve on, but it also gave us confidence that we were really on to something. See, at that time, what we were doing was, had never been done before. Nobody was building computers optimized to play games. There was no market data as to how big this market is. There was nobody to follow and draft from. Um, we modeled ourselves after Apple from an industrial design and identity perspective, an iconic nature. Um, and then we modeled ourselves after Dell from a go-to-market um, business model type of perspective. We knew we wanted to offer customization and personalization, and we wanted to focus on being a primarily direct type of business. But we, you know, we could model ourselves in the business that way and the way in which we wanted to approach our products, but had no idea like what these gaming computers were and if the people wanted to buy them and if people saw value in them and if they cared about them. And those initial reviews gave us that confidence and, of course, gave us the awareness and the exposure to the market so that people knew what we were doing. And that phone started ringing off the hook. And that confidence was, it was critical. Really, I don't know that if we wouldn't have gotten that confidence at that time that we'd have Alienware here today because we would have maybe thought we had a dud on our hands. If that reviewer would have said, this is really cool, but it's $5,000. I don't know why anybody in their right mind would buy this thing. Um, it's not worth it. And we would have been like, ah, maybe, maybe yeah. we shouldn't have done this. I mean, I don't know for sure. That wasn't necessarily a do-or-die moment. Um, but it was certainly a moment where I remember having the confidence to say, yeah, we're on to something here. Let's keep moving forward at this thing. 
Right. And then in 1998, you had PC World name the original Area 51 desktop one of its best PCs of all time. They listed 25 different machines and Area 51 was one of the ones listed. So clearly things were on the right track. You already mentioned the fact that you that the company was the first to offer a a laptop specifically for gaming. There were other firsts that came out too. Uh, you had the first liquid cooled desktop in 2004 with the ALX. So there's been a lot of innovation on uh, going on with the Alienware, the the brand has been associated with that, both in the components that you include inside your your rigs, but also obviously that that aesthetic, that thing that really sets the Alienware apart from just a, a, a first glance, whether it's the triangular shape of the new Area 51 machine or it's you know, custom lights and 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 cool vents and uh, really nice paint jobs. What do you see as the future for Alienware? We've, we've got a lot of stuff that's battling it out to try and really emerge as a a new era in gaming, whether it's augmented reality or virtual reality. But from your perspective, what do you see as the future for the Alienware brand? Um, I think there's an incredible amount of opportunity for us uh, ahead. You know, gaming has more momentum today than it's ever had. Uh, the amount of innovation that's going on, the amount of new products that are coming into this space, some even from our competitors, um, the innovation that's coming in here, it's phenomenal. And, you know, we're no longer a niche for, like, the first 15 years of our company's history. I no longer go out there and with my Alienware shirt, and people don't ask me, what is that? It's like people know already what Alienware is. When I tell people, you know, we do PC gaming, they're like, oh, yeah, my son is a huge PC he plays Minecraft or he's playing Overwatch or he's playing this or that. So it's an incredible time right now. It's really exciting because not only are we benefiting from this incredible momentum, but we helped build it. And that's an incredible thing to be a part of. Um, and, you know, we're an essential piece of the history of PC gaming and, uh, and I think an essential contributor to helping to get to where it is today in many ways, at least from a hardware perspective. So, it, it, the amount of momentum, the amount of energy, the amount of investment and everything that the entire industry is putting into PC gaming is, is unprecedented and way beyond anything we ever anticipated. In terms of opportunities that I see ahead, I think esports is massive. I, I genuinely believe that esports is going to become the most popular sport in the world in our lifetime. I, we are already seeing esports move into the Asian games in 2022, and that's just... Uh, another step in the path to it becoming potentially an Olympic sport. We're seeing esports being broadcast through the, the type of channels that you would expect, like online streaming platforms like twitch.tv or caffeine.tv. But we're also seeing our partnership with E-League bring esports to mainstream television as well to start kind of bridging those audiences and introducing it to television and giving accessibility to folks that enjoy watching TV in that type of a setting to this incredible um, culture and this incredible sport that's emerged here. And I've seen people get engaged uh, from all types of ages and groups and demographics into the E-League uh, eSports broadcast. They see it as a, as a sport like any other. There's competition in it. There's skill. There's passion. There's stories behind each of the athletes. And um, it's got all the right elements for it to be an extremely popular sport, which it already is, but ultimately uh, this is why I think it'll become the most popular sport. And within that, 
the opportunity we see for the entire gaming industry and the one that we're capitalizing on with Alienware is the hardware element of esports is massive. I mean, from my perspective, I don't think there's any other sport out there where the athlete depends on their equipment outside of vehicle racing where than there is in esports. I mean, your hardware can literally mean the difference, no matter how good of a player you are, between walking home with millions of dollars or walking home a loser with nothing. Mm -hmm. If that machine overheats, it locks up, it blue screens, it starts to lag, any issues occur, it's a very expensive mistake or it's a very expensive issue. So our commitment to gamers, especially esports gamers, is that quality will always be number one in everything that we do. And if we don't get it right for any reason, then there have been instances in the past where we haven't, like any company. The difference in what we're going to do is that we're going to immediately listen, respond, acknowledge if and when we failed, and fix it immediately. And that's been the commitment that we've delivered upon for years now. Quality is above everything else that we do. Performance is important. Industrial design is important. Our service and support are extremely important. But a lot of other companies will sacrifice those things or will sacrifice quality in the sake of those things. Mm -hmm. They'll give you more performance, but they'll stress the system a little bit too much. They'll give you great performance and a great configuration in a really sexy, thin form factor, but six months after you own it, it starts to overheat as dust builds up in the fans and as it starts to lose its thermal efficiency because they push the limits so much without any thermal headroom, no headroom at all, to give you that sexy look uh, because they know it's going to sell well that they pushed it too far and it fails. Our commitment, because we know how gaming is more than just for fun nowadays, gaming is becoming, it has become a profession mm-hmm. for many people out there. Our commitment is, is that we're going to give you the tools you need to enjoy yourself, enjoy yourself with these systems for extended periods of time. We design our systems with at least a four-year warranty option. So every computer you get from us has a four-year warranty option. That's an incredible responsibility for us because we self-warranty the machine. We don't give it to a third party. We don't you know, sell you an extended warranty contract from a reseller or anything like that. If you call us three and a half years after you purchase the machine with an issue, we are going to repair that issue. You're going to get a replacement, an on-site service technician in your house to repair it or whatever the case needs to be to get you back up and running at our expense. And that's important because we get to design the product up front to ensure that it's going to have the quality in there necessary so that you don't have those issues three and a half years down the road. So I can go on to a whole rant about quality and the importance of it. I hope it gives you an idea. But esports is a critical area in the future of growth. Um, we're doing a lot to help uh, accelerate that. Our partnership with E-League, check that out if you haven't seen it. It, it broadcasts on different Turner networks around the country. Um, we also have in China, we just, uh, actually announced our championship last weekend at China Joy. I was in, uh, in Beijing, or I'm sorry, in Shanghai announcing this, but we have a, something called the Alienware Game Arena, where we hold a thousand esports matches. Uh, this year alone, we've held a thousand. We'll hold about 2,000 before the end of the year. And this esports platform is intended to bridge the gap between the average gamer and the professional gamer. See, today there's a lot of, professional esports leagues like e-league and esl and others and the intel extreme masters but to get into that league you have to kind of be part of a professional team to get into that professional team you kind of have to go through an introduction somehow if you can reach out to them hope that they respond to you show them the skills you've got and you kind of have to be really 
really damn good. It's almost like the NFL mm-hmm. to get into uh, a professional esports league. What we're doing with the AGA, the Anywhere Game Arena, is we've created a platform where it's open, basically. Any gamers can come in, they can form a team, they can compete, they can start things little by little, getting to know other players, getting to build teams together, and eventually grow with us into becoming that esports athlete. At the same time, we work with um, professional esports teams in the region, in China, that take on certain members that are aspiring to become professional esports athletes, and they take them under their wing, and they teach them how to improve their game. They coach them, basically, and they compete against them to improve their game. So it's this platform that creates a funnel to help create more esports athletes and get them into the league and, and get them into um, the, the professional sport eventually. It's almost like a minor league, if you will, like what baseball does. Mm. So we're, we're, doing a, we're doing a lot of things around esports. Um, the other areas are virtual reality and augmented reality. We believe big in those categories. We think that virtual and augmented reality are going to be as disruptive over in, in our lives over the next 20 years as the Internet has been over the past 20 years. If you think about how the Internet has changed the way in which we learn, perform education, you have a question that we typed into Google or ask Siri or ask Alexa, mm-hmm. the way in which we learn, the way in which com- we communicate, whether it be through social media networks, through email, through voice over IP connections while we're playing a game, the way we communicate is has changed completely thanks to the Internet. Yeah. The way in which we entertain has completely changed over the internet as well. So think about solutions like, yeah, we have Netflix and Hulu and these online streaming platforms, but most of our entertainment today comes in through some type of internet solution. Even social media, you laugh at a, at a GIF or you see an, a funny online video. Um, you get an email that makes you laugh. Uh, you play an online game. You watch a movie. You do these things. Those three things, learning, um, communication and education completely disrupted by the internet over the past 20 years. And we take all these things with us now in our pocket in the smartphone, right? Which is kind of crazy. Think about it. We've only been really doing that for about 10 years or so since the launch of the iPhone. It was done before that, but in much smaller numbers. Virtual reality and augmented reality, we believe we're going to do the same thing. We believe that our, the way in which we communicate will be done, will be done less in a blind fashion like we do it today, where we're only really depending on audio for the most part, um, and a camera webcam solution, there's always been like this disconnect of personalization um, or, or, or with a webcam. It's like, it just doesn't feel really natural. And that's why I don't think webcams have really taken off as much as uh, a phone conversation has. But when you do a in-room type of virtual reality, multiple people are in one instance of a room, virtual reality interaction, it's a really cool and fascinating experience. And today it's very cartoonish and animated, but in the future, it'll imagine it's going to look as good as real-time video looks today. It'll, you'll actually be able, we'll actually be able to see each other like you've seen in sci-fi movies through augmented reality solutions and virtual reality solutions. So I, t- I joke with people that it's the true human teleportation technology, but instead of teleporting our bodies, like we've always thought about from sci-fi movies and everything, VR and AR will allow us to teleport our minds to anywhere around the room, anywhere around the world. And we can be with anyone, anywhere, and basically at any time. You'll be able to transport yourself into the future, and you'll be able to transport yourself into the past. Not real, of course, not a time machine. But if you think about a movie and its setting, and a setting of a movie being an old Western, 
you'll be able to teleport yourself into that fictional setting that whatever, whoever, whatever that company or whoever produced that content decided to create for there. So you can, you know, joking, jokingly, we can all be, we can be having this interview in a, you know, in a, in a, in a restaurant in 1922, if we wanted to in New York, for example, and, and that environment can be all around us. And I would be looking at you and we would be at a table actually having that conversation from the comfort of our homes. Now, that sounds really crazy and far-fetched, and people talk, listen to me, and they say, this guy's a, a dreamer. But when I t- remind them that, you know, a smartphone's only 10 years old, and if I told you 20 years ago that you'd be carrying a computer, which imagine what computers looked like back then, in your pocket, and it would be a thousand times faster and be able to communicate with anybody you want to, and you'd be able to do all the amazing things that we do with our smartphones today, they would have said, oh, you're a dreamer. You're crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's about this category, clearly. <laughs> it is. It, well, and I, I appreciate that. It's great to hear from someone who has that sort of uh, vision and passion because it's the sort of thing I've been talking about for a while as well. This uh, this very disruptive technology that it, disruptive does not necessarily mean something bad. Obviously, it can mean something amazing. I mean, the Internet has truly been a disruptive technology. The world is totally different from the pre-internet days, uh, you know, I while the internet was a thing when I was a kid, there was no web when I was a kid. That was that came when I was in college, uh, and so really, most people's awareness of the internet really didn't arise till later. And then to to actually have lived through that, to have seen the birth of the web, the uh, evolution of it, it's it, coming into play as a marketplace. It's the, you know, the, the internet bubble bursting and then it reforming stronger than ever before. The argument over whether or not Web 2.0 even means anything. All of that was uh, really fascinating to, to watch. And I agree with you in that I think we're seeing the same sort of thing the very earliest days uh, for virtual reality and augmented reality, you know, virtual reality has had a couple of false starts in the past, largely uh, limited by the the hardware at the time, the hardware and the software, uh, which wasn't quite up to the task to meet the expectations people had for it after the various uh, science fiction media uh, versions of what virtual reality was going to be versus what it really was when you put on that 30 pound helmet and you saw, uh, you know, a a pterodactyl made out of four polygons. Uh, it's a much different world today. And to see where it's going, I, I really do hope to see VR and AR take off uh, in a big, big way over the next few years. It's it's uh, still got some barriers in front of it, uh, including the various competing platforms, as well as the uh, the price to entry right now is, is still fairly high. But I think that those, just like other technologies, those issues will work themselves out over time as the best approaches and the technology itself becomes less expensive. Uh, so I really have high hopes for that as well. And to touch also on your point about esports and how that has become a big component or it, and it's, it's growing in importance. I would also add that the, the culture of live streaming games uh, and let's plays and things of that nature has exploded over the last few years where it might have been a few years ago. I might mention this to some people and they say, you watch other people play video games. What What's that about? <laughs> uh, well, now I've got a friend. She's the mom of a couple of kids. And she was telling me just the other day about how much she likes to watch these let's plays that uh, have these guys playing games and making jokes the whole time. And I, I'm thinking, well, this is 
this is a, a, a mom of, of young kids. She's not, she's not in the gamer culture, but she's already aware of this element of gaming. So we're seeing that continue to grow as well. I think that you are right on target about gamer culture. You know, it's just getting stronger year over year. And you could even argue that the, the long time between console generations means that gamers who follow console games often are feeling like they're being left behind over time. They might get in, they might get a, a, a half-hearted update, right? Or what could be viewed as a half-hearted update, because it's not a full jump in generation. It's technically the same generation, but slightly better specs. Meanwhile, you have the PC gamers who are customizing their rigs to, to their design where, you know, it's playing the games they want to play, uh, and you, you know, it, it's interesting because I've seen PC games ride an arc where for a while they were on top and then the console started to come into, uh, the foreground and then you see that switch back and forth. I feel like the PC games are firmly grabbing the spotlight right now and you're seeing the consoles being pushed a little further back, uh, Probably we'll see that cycle continue over and over again until the end of time. But it is interesting to to have seen it happen a few times at this point, because there was a time where post-1983 video game crash, uh, I just became a PC gamer for many years. I skipped the Nintendo years. I skipped Super Nintendo. It wasn't until uh, PS2, I think, before I came back over to consoles. So... PC gaming, I think, is bigger than ever. I mean, it's it's clear if you go to any of these, uh, whether it's a, a trade show event or something like the Penny Arcade Expo, which is all about all sorts of different games. PC gaming is huge there. Uh, I think we're just going to continue to see that. And I can't wait to see the next uh, Alienware rigs. I can't wait to to finally pull the trigger and buy one because I keep I keep very gently suggesting it to my wife. Uh and that hasn't <laughs> hasn't yet paid off yet, but I, I I feel like I'm close. I'm real close. So maybe I'll have one of those monster rigs of my own before too much longer. Uh, thank you so much for joining me and telling me more about the backstory of Alienware, kind of the philosophy of the company, where you guys are going. I really very much appreciate it. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, it's a it's a really exciting time for us and a really exciting time to be a gamer. And first and foremost, we're gamers at Alienware. This is our, our lifeblood. We love this. Um, you know, the, our jobs are hard, but in a lot of ways they're easy too because we're making the biggest, baddest, amazing toys for ourselves first and foremost. And we were just very lucky that there's a lot of people out there that are like us that appreciate what we're building. So this is a lot of fun, and I really appreciate you giving us an opportunity to tell the story and, and, and share it with everybody. Well, I do have one last question for you. Do you have a particular game that you consider to be your favorite? It can be from any era. Yeah, well, right now, not my all-time favorite, but right now I'm playing uh, Player Unknown Battleground. Oh, yeah. We're having a lot of fun. PUBG! Team. Yeah, we're having a lot of fun with that. Um, uh, we're doing squad matches every night now. Unfortunately, I was up till 2 a.m. last night <laughs> um, doing that, and it's been a rough week because I've been up so late with the guys hanging out and playing. Um, before that, I was playing Overwatch, but my favorite all-time game is, was Half-Life. Mm. Um, ha- what Half-Life did is I've, I've always been predominantly a first-person shooter or an RTS, real-time strategy gamer. And um, what Half-Life did for me for the first time is 
as a first-person genre game, it brought in uh, a storyline that was really engaging and fascinating. And you didn't want to just play the game because the graphics were awesome or the bosses were big and bad and amazing and, and the game was challenging and the weapons were awesome. You played it because you really wanted to see how this story ended. And you were, you were captured by the storyline. And I think that that changed games, especially the first-person genre, moving forward, where all those traditional elements uh, that I spoke about, the game, the graphics, the guns, the weapons, the bosses, all these things, they weren't what defined a great game anymore. And everybody who's tried to use that recipe since and, and solely rely on it has, for the most part, not had a huge success. It's the storyline that has really helped define um, the success of games, whether it's in the game itself or it's a peripheral storyline, like in the case of Overwatch. It's a story about the characters that exist outside the game itself, and the game is like one element of their lives. Um, it's really, it adds a more personal connection to the game, um, and it creates retention of the game. And I just feel, at least maybe it wasn't the first one to do it, but in my recollection of kind of my gaming career, my gaming uh, life, Half-Life was the one that stood out to me as that moment where I was like, wait, this is more than a game. This is like a movie. This is a story, and I, I want to keep playing to learn more about it. Well, as a, as a fellow Gordon Freeman fan, I say that's a great answer. <laughs> I hope you win many chicken dinners in the future. And thanks once again. I haven't won one yet, but I've gotten it close. I've come in second place a few times. I've, I've, one of the reasons I need one, a new gaming rig is so I can play PUBG properly because, uh, my current one is just not, yeah, it's just not up to the task. I just, when it, when you're dropping frames that much in a game where you need to see where everybody is, it is not, it's not ideal. So that's, that's one of the driving factors for me. I've been, I've been, uh, really, uh, chomping at the bit to play some PUBG. So, well, thank you again. Well, if it I makes you feel any better, if it makes you feel any better, Jonathan, imagine what I'm playing on. Uh -huh. I have access to whatever I want, and uh -huh. I still drop frames <laughs> in PUBG. The game is a bear. <laughs> they well, need to optimize that thing. It is. It is an early access. So, <laughs> yeah, that's true. In yeah. their defense, and yesterday or the day before, they came out with a patch that was a little rough. It introduced a bunch of lag, and they acknowledged it, which is cool. Same thing that we do when something wrong happens. You know, they acknowledged it, they apologized for it, and they said they guaranteed us that they were going to fix it. But uh, it made it even more challenging. But you know what I found fascinating is all this lag was introduced into this game, and we were all still playing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that, that's the sign of a of a very captivating game when you can yeah. you, when you can spend time pointing out the problems and complain about them while you're still playing the game. That's an addictive game. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's one that's got gotcha. you. Yeah, you know they built something special, that's for sure. So I'm I'm really happy for that team. You know, they're a small team, uh, a smaller type of developer, um, and I love those stories. I love to see um, when small indie developers and, and medium-sized publishers and developers have these breakout games because it's so hard. Mm -hmm. The market's so saturated right now. There's so many games out there. When 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 a company can come out and kind of figure out the recipe and have that hit. You know, it really changes the company, and it's, it's an exciting time. So I'm really excited for the whole team at Blue Hole and, and all the guys that are, are making this game. We don't have a partnership with them or anything. I'm, this is not an endorsement. It's just me being the gamer nerd that I am. <laughs> I just love this stuff. I can appreciate that. Thank you again so much. It's been a, a fantastic conversation. Thank you, Jonathan. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend. 
Again, I have to thank Frank for taking the time to speak with me. He also met with me during E3, and his passion for gaming was clear in both cases. And in a moment, we're going to cover a few more odds and ends about Alienware. But first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, we're back. Now, I didn't talk about this with Mr. Azor, but Alienware experienced a really big change in 2006. That's when the PC company Dell, like, dude, you got a Dell, that Dell, acquired Alienware as a wholly owned subsidiary of Dell Computers. Nelson Gonzalez issued an open letter explaining the move from Alienware's perspective. And in that, he said that Dell and Alienware shared similar philosophies in the personal computer space, including the strategy to use direct the direct business model with consumers. And he said that Dell would give Alienware the assets to step up to the next level in gaming rig production and shipping. You see, there were these huge markets of opportunity for the company, uh, especially in areas like in Asia. But as a boutique PC manufacturing operation, they just didn't have the assets that would allow them to reach those markets. They didn't have the manpower. They didn't have the the hookups in the supply chain to be able to step up manufacturing to the next level. For that, they needed something. They needed to either grow exponentially, which was difficult considering their boutique PC status, or they needed to partner with an established big company in the space, and that ended up being Dell. So... Uh, Gonzalez was quick also to point out that Alienware wasn't going anywhere. It was going to continue to exist as its own separate brand from Dell with its own dedicated product development, marketing, planning, and customer support departments. So it would effectively operate as a, as a, as a, a, a private entity within the confines of Dell. You know, from the outside, that's what it would look like. And he was very careful to say, you're not going to see a whole lot of changes here. Now, Nelson Gonzalez served as CEO for Alienware until 2007. Today, Michael Dell is technically the CEO of the company because he's, he's the founder and the CEO of Dell Technologies. And Frank Azor is the general manager. Over the years, the company has experimented a bit, both in case design and in new products. In 2014, Alienware announced its Alpha Steam Machine, which was a small PC box system, one of those self-contained PCs, very, very compact. And you would just hook that up to your display and your keyboard and your mouse, and it would take care of everything. Now, it ended up launching as a Windows 8 gaming PC in a box instead of a Steam Machine, but that was due to delays in the Steam OS, the operating system from Valve, and that reminds me, I need to do an episode about Valve at some point. These days, Alienware is also getting into peripherals. They are offering up some uh, some accessories to PC games like keyboards or a computer mouse, like a gaming mouse, that sort of thing, and displays as well. So they have branched out beyond uh, the gaming rigs. This is not the first time that they've worked with various peripherals, but uh, I can tell you, they're really pretty. I got a chance to play with some when I was at E3, and uh, I liked them. They felt they felt great, and they look really nice, really snazzy. If I were a pro gamer, I'd probably be looking at those. Um, although, obviously, I would want to make sure that they really stood 
the test of my elite skills. Being the gamer that I am, if you hand me a cutting edge machine and tell me to give you, give you my thoughts on it, chances are I'm just going to say it's real fast and pretty, um, largely because my skills are not at a level where I can really push the hardware at a decent amount to, to give you an idea of any limitations I might encounter. I doubt that I would ever run into any limitations unless it were something along the lines of trying to run a particularly complicated game, like complicated in the sense of graphics intensive and, and processor intensive uh, on a machine. In which case, it's not really me that's testing the machine. It's the software. One thing I need to address before I get out of here is PC prices, because Alienware rigs aren't and never have been cheap. They are expensive. It's an expensive boutique customized gaming rig approach. And so you're you're spending a premium for that. There's a great article on Tech Radar about Alienware's history that includes a specific example that I think is helpful. Back in 1998, in the early days of Alienware, remember the, the company that became Alienware launched in 96. Well, in 98, that's when Alienware launched the first Area 51 tower desktop PC. The price tag for one particular configuration of this PC was $3,799, which if you adjust for inflation, would be more than $5,645 today. This particular configuration of the Area 51 desktop, keeping in mind these rigs are customizable, so you could build it out with fewer bells and whistles, and that would bring the price down. It was an impressive build at the time. It included two Voodoo 3D graphics cards, and included a 2D graphics card, because remember, the Voodoo 3D graphics cards uh, didn't handle 2D rendering on their own. You had to pair it with another graphics card. So I had three graphics cards total. and dual sound cards, which would allow for uh, two different incompatible sound formats to work on the same machine. So that way, if you had a game that supported one but not the other, you were covered because it had both of those sound cards in there. And it had a lot more to it as well. So it was a premium price, to be sure, and it definitely would be less expensive to build your own gaming rig from the ground up, selecting all the same components. So if you went out and bought the processors and the graphics cards and the sound cards and the motherboard and the case and the power supply and the cooling system and all of that stuff, if you bought all of that yourself you would not spend so much money as you would buying the Alienware rig. But you also have to remember, part of that price that you're paying for Alienware includes the labor of putting all that stuff together for you and making sure that the actual computer works before it is shipped to you. So you don't have that frustration of building out a rig, turning on the power, and nothing happens. And then having to track down where is the issue? Is there something that's not plugged in correctly? Is there a bad component? All of that would be taken care of for you. So part of the price goes to that. Another big part of the price ends up covering the aesthetic appeal of Alienware. These are customized machines with uh, with very cool cases, often with lighting effects and other uh, elements that set it apart from other types of gaming rigs. So you then ask, all right, well, is that worth that extra amount of money, This this really cool design that... Uh, sets this apart from, say, a regular, you know, tower desktop style. And if that's important to you, then that extra money might be well warranted. The fact that 
all those decisions are taken care of for you. The build is taken care of for you. The uh, the aesthetic is there if that appeals to you. Uh, and now granted, today, as we alluded in the interview, the complications of figuring out what components go into your computer, those have been whittled down significantly. You don't have to worry nearly as much today as you did back in the day where you had the different battling sound cards and video cards that uh, that you you know that that were dominating the space and most of the games that were coming out would only support some but not all of them which fractured the market that's not as big an issue now so you can take a lot of that confusion out but it's still kind of a daunting process for a lot of people to build their own PC so yeah alienware rigs can get expensive particularly if you want to build a beast of a machine i do recommend that you go to the alienware website and just you know go nuts like just see what you could do if you went premium as far as you possibly could cuz i guarantee you you're going to get a rig that's going to come in at around like 10 grand it's crazy but it would also be amazing if you had that kind of cheddar to drop on a on a pc personally unless six certain numbers come up in the near future i i don't think i'll be able to uh justify buying the premium cream of the crop fastest that there is type of gaming rigs that are out there. But they these Alienware rigs that are built, they also tend to perform really, really well against various benchmarks. They're not always at the top. Sometimes they're battling at the top with a couple of other gaming rigs, but they're always in contention. So that you get good performance as well. The question are they worth the price? That's a decision that every gamer has to make for him or herself. I can say honestly, I have never owned an Alienware rig, but I have built out a rig online more than once. And one of these days, I'm guessing I'm going to pull the trigger on this because I really do like the aesthetic and I do like the idea of all of that work being taken care of for me so I don't have to sit down and do it all myself. But that's because I have made that decision. I completely am aware that this is a premium style product. And uh, then at that point, I can finally play the latest PC games and then immediately start soaking up bullets from all the other players because a gaming rig's performance depends pretty heavily on the skill of the gamer. And my skill is, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm more than, I'm older than 40 guys. My Twitch skills have been on the decline for a decade, and they weren't great to start with, but I still enjoy playing. Well, I'm very glad that I got a chance to look into this particular company. It's one that I've seen around forever, and I've been a fan of their design for quite some time, but I never really looked into it before. If you guys have any suggestions for types of companies I should do an episode on or people I should interview or really any topic in technology that you would like to learn more about, whether it's cutting-edge, brand-new technology, or something from ancient history, and you've always wondered, wondered how did it work and, and where did it go, send me a message. Let me know what you want. My email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, or you can always drop me a line on Twitter or Facebook. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. 
Remember, you can watch me record episodes live at twitch.tv slash techstuff. I record on Wednesdays and Fridays. So if you want to watch an episode get recorded, including all the bits where I make little mistakes and flubs and have to go back and fix it, then you should tune in on Wednesdays and Fridays. I also like to chat with the chat room, and we have a good old time. So I'll see you then, and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 